a little bit about me, uh, my background, a little bit different than other speakers. Um, the two esteemed people you had on before, I would call sources of information for the research that I've done. Uh, my background is uh, my parents both grew up in India and uh, my dad left India around 1960 to do uh, some um, PhD and then some postdoctoral work in London. And that's where I was born. And then when I was about two years old, our family came to the US and we were in various places in the Northeast. I settled down in the greater Boston area. So that's the middle picture on the left. And that's where I am right now. And I've been here in New England in this uh, Boston, Massachusetts area for oh, uh, close to 30 years now. And I'm actually in the process now of making a move uh, down to Florida. So that's the picture in the lower left there. So I'm gonna get into semi-retirement mode and hopefully work my last, whatever, five, 10 years of work. Uh, I work in technology sales. And so I do these kind of presentations all day long. And, uh, and on the right side is uh, my family. So if you look on the left in Rajasthan, that's where our kind of uh, sub-community uh, originally came from, our Mawari. And, uh, and then people about 1850s uh, started scattering. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if it was because of the railroads or what happened. Uh, there's no clear stories about it, but people started scattering all over. A lot of people went east. So they went to Bengal and Bihar. And we still got some family over there in Kolkata and different places in Bihar and Chhattisgarh. And then maybe in the last... I don't know, 30, 40 years, people scattered further all over India. So I got family in Delhi, Mumbai. My wife grew up in Jabalpur. So we've got, and I didn't even put all the circles. I'd have to circle all of India, but we've got people all over the place. So my perspective is a little different. I did not start with knowledge. I did not start with a family that is interested. Uh, nobody in my, my parents, nobody's like immediately next to be interested in any of this. So I started from literally a blank sheet of paper, zero knowledge, zero. Your children have a thousand times more knowledge than I did when I was a child, let's put it that way, okay? Now the disadvantage of that is I have to start from scratch. The advantage of that is I have to start from scratch. All right, so how did I get involved in endology? Uh, very, very simple things, okay? Uh, and I feel all humans should have this, but for some reason, people don't. And I'm not talking about Indian people, I'm talking about people, people, right? We should all be curious, right? We come into this life, why are we here? What are we doing, right? Uh, did we get to choose our family? Did we get to choose our ethnicity? Did we get to choose our religion dharma? Did we get, why anything happens? So these are the basic questions I had as a child growing up and I couldn't get any good answers. I couldn't get any answers from family, from friends. I certainly could not get any answers from teachers because keep in mind, I grew up in America in the 60s and 70s, right? I'm in my 50s, so I'm a little bit older for most second generation people. My parents came in the 60s, they're, they're immigrants, I'm American. My kids are all grown up, they're ages 30, 27, and 25. So my kids are third gen. Very soon they're gonna be having kids, they'll be fourth generation. So we're no longer like an immigrant community in America, we're just Americans and we've been here, you know, coming on quite a while. And that's not a big deal. There's people in the UK have been, you know, a generation earlier than America. There's people in the Caribbean that have been there for, you know, I think it's since the mid 1800s or something like that, they're brought over as indentured servants. So there's a history going back quite a ways. So anyhow, that curiosity led to dissatisfaction because the stuff that I was taught in school was complete nonsense. And anybody with half a brain would listen to it and say, that's just a joke. But, you know, being a child, I obviously couldn't tell the teacher they're wrong and I couldn't get clear answers from my parents and there was nobody around. Back in those days, we really didn't have, uh, you know, where I grew up, we really didn't have much of any kind of, uh, formal India community. We didn't have a mandir. We didn't have a community center. We had to drive hours and hours away to see a, 
uh, Indian movie. We had to drive hours away to go to Indian grocery store. So it was different than it is today. Today, uh, you know, people have been in America much longer. Third one there is common sense. I hear a lot of things I've read. I'm not exaggerating many, many thousands of books and I've talked to thousands of people. And sometimes I hear theories that are just completely wacky. Um, <clears throat> so it's possible uh, that some of the things I say might offend some people. I apologize in advance, but I just take everything with, you know, big grain of salt. And I try to think, you know, what's normal? What's realistic? I put myself in someone else's shoes, whether it's a thousand years ago or 5,000 years ago, it doesn't matter. We're humans. And just apply a little bit of common sense. Uh, at the bottom there, you know, this whole thing started out with history. I just wanted to understand history. And I felt that if I could understand Indian history in a very logical way, uh, that would be a good foundation. Later on, much later on, that actually kind of uh, got me interested in spirituality in a very indirect way. So the history part I was interested in as a child, right? That goes back to five, 10 years old. And I really started jumping into it when I was about 18, uh, college essentially. Spirituality is a really funny story. There's a TV show in the US called Larry King. I, I think the show's over with, I think, I don't know if he passed away or whatever, but Larry King Live. I was watching that show a long time ago. This might be, this might be the 1990s. And he had a psychic medium on there, the guy on the right, James Van Prague, who wrote a book, Talking to Heaven and a bunch of other things. And he, on the phone, was randomly taking calls, randomly taking calls from people all over America who were calling in and he was connecting with their deceased loved ones. So that was kind of my connection to spirituality because I'm an engineer by training, right? I work in technology sales, but my training is engineering. So there has to be evidence and logic behind anything. Otherwise, I'm not buying it. Uh, these calls were random. Uh, the talk show host, Larry King, couldn't control it. And he was doing a great job bringing back very specific data. It wasn't, I love you, gobbledygook. It was very, very specific. So I was impressed. And it opened my eyes. And I, like I said, it opened the door. Didn't convince me of anything, but I thought there's something there. And maybe uh, this whole thing about the soul is not a belief. Maybe it's a science. Maybe it's some kind of energy uh, that exists uh, before we take this body and after we take this body. And maybe someday we'll have a way to actually measure that. Uh, but right now we don't have that technology. But it took it for me from the level of uh, blind belief to uh, there's a science there. We're just not sophisticated enough yet to quantify it. Getting back to my background. So <clears throat> when I started doing my research on Indian history and putting together information, um, in the beginning, it was very difficult, right? Because there aren't good public sources of data. Maybe in India, there's more. In America, there, there was not too much. Um, when I got to college, I was about 18 years old and I was in an engineering school. So there was the engineering uh, university library. I started getting access to very good books. And when I started reading the books, uh, my mind blew up. It really did. Because I said, oh my goodness, the stuff that I've been taught is not only incorrect, but it's almost 180 degrees from the reality. And I realized there's some very good knowledge out there, but for some reason, the people who are really knowledgeable tend to be super, super geeky. And they have a high, very hard time explaining it to the average guy in the street. So they do this very deep PhD, post PhD research. And guess who finds out about it? Nobody, nobody. It'll end up being like a thousand other academics around the world, but the average person never heard of it. I thought, you know what? This is where I can step in. I can take this information, organize it, and present it to the general public. That's gonna be my value. So I am not a PhD in Indology. I don't read Sanskrit. I haven't gone through and translated original texts. That's not my value add. My value add is the people you're seeing on the screen here, I'm the one who's standing and the, the icon, the image on the left is standing on the shoulders of giants, right? I'm the one standing on their shoulders, bringing together their information, 
and making that available to the public. Because this information is not public, not at all. I think, forget about US textbooks. I think even in India, the textbooks are still very, very outdated, very, very incorrect. Wrong things are being taught to young people. They're blatantly lies in some cases. Some cases they're just, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, some academic laziness. People haven't updated information, but in other cases they might be really, really bad. P.L. Bhargav, this is someone who did work in India all the way back into the 1950s. He did great work in chronologies, um, but his work was a tad incomplete because back then a lot of people uh, bought into the whole area invasion thing, including him. It wasn't that uh, uh, you know he had a negative view, it's just that that was the standard line back in those days, and uh, that's what, uh, that's what he, he pushed. Remember, I started with a blank sheet of paper, so I wrote that down as a historical fact. I put it in my timeline as 1500 BC and worked around it. Only later on did I find out it was complete nonsense. B.B. Lal, S.R. Rao, and a whole bunch of others, fantastic archaeologists. I'm really a big fan of archaeology because it's uh, unlike astrology or unlike astronomy, where you can look at the stars and you can say that this happened in 2000 BC and this happened in 20,000 BC. It's up to my mood that day. You can't do that with archaeology. There's carbon dating. And the quality of that carbon dating has gotten a lot better in the last 30 years. So they've done fantastic work highlighting different cities uh, and uh, settlements, human settlements in India uh, that were there uh, before the epics and uh, during the epics. And the epic period I would call Dasharajna Ramayana Mahabharata. So it's a period from around 3000 BC to maybe 14, 1500 BC and the period afterwards. Francois Gautier is a uh, French guy, uh, grew up in France from a family and his family actually I think was very Catholic had, uh, they were like missionaries trying to convert everybody. And, but when he came to India, he really understood what was happening and uh, he turned 180. And he's a huge proponent of India and a huge proponent of Dharma and he's done fantastic work. He has a museum in Pune and uh, I'm providing content for the museum and I'll, I'll show a little bit of snippet of that later. A lot of other good people, Michelle Danino also, <clears throat> uh, European has done fantastic work, a lot of good books. Maybe this will show here, his book, The Lost River. Saraswati and a lot of other, lot of other uh, good work. Raji, uh, Vijal Agarwal is a good friend of mine. He's here in the US. He's, uh, I like to call him my local encyclopedia. When I have questions, I ask him. So he's someone who grew up in India, very good command of Hindi, very good command of Sanskrit and can read some of these original works. Rajiv Malhotra, uh, a lot of you may have heard of him. He's doing fantastic work. Uh, he's been doing that for like 20 years. He's another person who I think can take a lot of ideas in academia and kind of uh, translate them for the public, but in a more academic way. One of his recent books is this one, Sanskrit. Well, it's basically non-translatables, translating Sanskrit. Uh, G.P. Singh's another historian. He's done some very good work a long time ago. And then obviously you've had people like Shankar Kashyap on your show. Conrad Els, too, by the way, is a friend of mine. Srikant Talagari, I visited him in his home in Mumbai. A lot of great people, and I've built upon their work. So now, <clears throat> the title of the slide, The Real History. I'm not proposing that my history is the real history and everyone else is the fake history. But I think after you see my history, you're not going to look at other people's version of history the same. Uh, so a quick summary. There's four cradles of civilization. You may have heard there's Egypt, there's Mesopotamia, which today is called Iraq, there's India, and there's China. And the reason why civilization for humans evolved is because of rivers. It's an easy way to grow food. And we think that agriculture might have started by accident, right? People were hunter-gatherers living in the forests or jungles. And uh, they might have discovered that, uh, hey, I don't have to get killed by the big animal and risk my neck, uh, I can just eat some food down by the river and I've got all the water I need and the river is also a highway, it's for transportation. So uh, Egypt had the Nile, uh, 
Mesopotamia had Tigris and Euphrates. China had uh, Yellow River. India had about 10 to 12 rivers. So it's not just the Sindhu, it's not just the Saraswati, it's not just the Ganga, Yamuna, it's all these tributaries. It is just loaded with water, right? Because you get this landmass that slammed into Asia, uh, you know, 50, 20 million years ago, and you get the Himalayas as a big wall that stops the weather, so you get a ton of rainfall. So you get tropical weather, rivers, rainfall. This is a very good climate for growing a lot of food and supporting a big population, and that develops civilization. So it's a good fortune of geography um, that created the civilization. And then nature protected that civilization. You got mountains to your north and northwest. You got oceans all around you at the bottom to protect you from invaders. So India was protected for a very long time. It was only till maybe 800 BC when you start getting some uh, Syrian invasions potentially that you started getting uh, outside incursions. But huge long history of basically geographic protection, uh, which fostered a civilization that was kind of what they call, you know, very high in the butter, very low on the guns, right? They always talk about guns versus butter. Very wealthy civilization, didn't have to spend too much on military. Of course, there were tons of wars internally, but uh, you didn't have outside people coming in and uh, just wiping out the civilization. All right, misunderstandings of history. So the whole Aryan invasion thing started out as a very innocent linguistic misunderstanding but then became a political tool to dominate people, to dominate the region. Um, so if you look at colonialism, uh, two huge nations, India and China, are two huge civilizations were just too big to conquer. Too many people, impossible to take it over. So you had to make up theories to kind of subvert people. So the Aryan invasion, which started out as a, or migration, some people call it, started out as a linguistic misunderstanding because they saw the relationship of the words. And, uh, and they originally innocently said, well, looks like India's more ancient. So it looks like that's where the words came from. That's where the people came from. Some of the people migrated out. They went to Central Asia and then went to Europe. And that's how we got it. That innocent um, observation over time changed to become political. And so they said, well, we couldn't have come from these people. So we have to make some other source. And it couldn't be Europe because it's too young. So they had to make a, a middle source, which became the uh, Asian steppes, Central Asia, uh, Southern Russia. And that's where you get the word uh, Caucasian, Caucasus Mountains. It's got nothing to do with white people. It's just Caucas Caucasus Mountains. Big misunderstanding, which then somehow became codified into uh, a dogma. And it's just ridiculous, frankly. It's very ridiculous. People have been pushing it back against that now. And uh, as opposed to just saying no, 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 now they're saying yes and providing a positive option, which people call the out of India theory, which is that, yes, people migrated out. Yes, we have historical information in the Vedas that that migration might have started around 3000 BC. And it might have been a trickle of people, but those trickle took with them their language and culture, spread it to Central Asia, where it morphed a little bit. And then from there, it spread to Eastern Europe, where it morphed some more. So you can see the history of the languages. And there might be also a DNA flow also. And we have some uh, information about the DNA, too. Omissions. I annoys me to no end when people talk about the Saraswati River as mythological or as if uh, it doesn't exist. It's just a river, it's a river. And anybody who's looked at the planet Earth can see that uh, it's hot and tropical and the clouds will uh, release their water when they hit the wall of the Himalayas and it'll flow all over the place. So Saraswati was a major river and Sindhu, which we call Indus, was a major river and Ganga was a major river. And uh, India is on a big tectonic plate which keeps sliding into Asia and you get these massive earthquakes and the rivers move. And so that river, Saraswati, moved and eventually dried up or desiccated. 
And we have some uh, chronological dating for that. We know that it was pretty much dried up around 1900 BC. So all these references in the Vedas to people living along the Saraswati or cities along the Saraswati or the Dashadvati, which is a, a tributary of it, hey, that had to be before 1900 BC. That's pretty much common sense. And that lines up beautifully with all the other information we have, which I'll show in my timeline. So that's, that's a huge, gigantic glaring omission. Um, another thing that I found very strange, and even as a child, I noticed this, that we have names of people in India starting from the Buddha or maybe Mahavir, but before then, there's no names. So I thought to myself, isn't that strange? You've got tens of millions of people in this huge geographic area and nobody had a name. And yet, in Indian culture, we have thousands and thousands of names. And yet all of that stuff is thrown out the window. It's basically considered garbage. It's ignored. It's considered fantasy, mythology, and it's not in any history book. It is history. It's history, and it needs to be in history books. Simple. We have the king's list of Egypt, the pharaoh's list. We have the king's list of Mesopotamia, okay? And we have the king's list and the priest's list of India, same thing. And you can't say that, well, I'm going to respect the testimony of these people, but I'm not going to respect the testimony of those people. Nonsense. It's people. We have the names. Put it in writing. And then last thing, distortions. And Rajiv Malhotra did a good job of this. You know, what is itihas? Is it cleanly the word history? Not exactly. Is it mythology? Not exactly. You can almost think of it as history with commentary. Okay. Um, a lot of uh, distortions entered Indian history later on. So one of the things I always joke with people, and you've heard the other speakers here talk about this. Indian history is so long, it's approximately 10,000 years that names repeat. So there were many Rams, many Krishnas, right? My last name is Mohanka, there are other Mohankas. It doesn't mean we're all the same person, right? We could have lived a thousand years apart. And so uh, things happened that were later interpolations of history. The, uh, some of the uh, sections of the Ramayana were added later on. Uh, this is not my work, this is the work of people like P.L. Bhargav and others who look at the style of writing and can use that to actually chronologically date and show that certain sections were added long afterwards. They were not part of the original Ramayana. Plus, funny part, which might, well, many of you probably know, is the uh, Mahabharata refers back to the Ramayana, right? There's the Rama Pakyan. And in that, uh, basically, when uh, Ram and Sita are coronated, end of story. There's no banishment, Sita. That's a later addition. Now, another thing that's a distortion is the whitewashing of the Islamic period. Uh, folks, you need to be very, very simple and straightforward about this. In America, we had slavery. It was brutal. It happened. It happened. Just be honest and describe what happened. Many of the Native Americans, who they call Indians, right, or Red Indians, the Native peoples here, what they call First Americans, those people were slaughtered. It happened. It's part of history. Be honest. Tell history. If you don't understand history, how can you uh, learn from it? So this was a part of Indian history, and it needs to be very clearly understood. In fact, I often describe it as... Uh, Colonialism 1.0. So colonialism 1.0 was Islamic kingdoms and empire. Colonialism 2.0 was uh, European and uh, the British Empire, which is nominally Christian. Some people claim that right now India and other places in the world are in colonialism 3.0, which is kind of a domination of US and the West. Uh, but we're seeing uh, the end of that era, and particularly we're seeing China and others that are uh, kind of flipping the script on that. So when I put together Indian history, I noticed that uh, there's a very good flow and there's kind of a pattern, a pattern of repetition where things happen every couple hundred years, things happen. There's major revolutions, there's major turning points. So the Manvantar dynasty is probably historical. It started with Manu and the word Manu is synonymous with man. So I think what happened is we may not have every single name of every person going back then, but approximately we do. 
And it was probably some uh, tribal chieftains who rose in power and started beating their competitors. And eventually that became uh, kingdoms. And then those kingdoms were ruled by a more powerful king. And so I call him emperor. And I think we should be very careful about the words we use. You'll notice that other civilizations are proud of themselves and proud of their people, proud of their ancestors. So they use the proper words. They don't use prince when they should use king. They don't use king when they should use emperor. Okay. They don't use country when they should use the word empire. We need to be honest with these words. And there's nothing wrong of being proud of India and proud of Bharat and proud of its history. So I call it Emperor Bharat. And this is uh, probably around the Haryana area, probably around 3300 BC. So very early period. Now there was hundreds of years of growth of those kingdoms. And you've had the other two speakers talk about the Puru Bharata dynasty, very well documented. That's essentially what the Vedas are. It's this whole dynasty and all of their priests, all of their Purohits, and all of that documentation, which was memorized orally originally and later put into writing. So I consider Dasharajna of War of Ten Kings to be the first epic. Okay. I consider Ramayana to be the second and Mahabharata to be the third. And think about the way it's portrayed. It makes completely logical sense. We see the Mahabharata. Remember that big TV serial about Mahabharata? I think there were two versions of them. It looks semi-historical. It really does. We see people. We see people going to battle. But then when we look at the Ramayana, which is farther back in history, things start to become a little bit foggy. And that makes sense. It's farther away from us. So the history wasn't documented as clearly. And then we go even farther back to the Dasharajna, War of Ten Kings. It's gone. It's, it's missing. If you talk to the average person on the street, they will have never heard of it. And isn't that a tragedy? It's not just a war. It's a series of battles in a huge multi-year war. It was a turning point of Indian history. It is what I would call epic number one. So together, these make what I call the epic trilogy. Dasharajna, Ramayana, Mahabharata. War of Ten Kings, Legend of Ram, Great Civil War of India in chronological order. Then we have a gap of big chunk of time, and then we have kind of a reform movement. And the reform movement wasn't throwing out Hindu Dharma. It was actually going back to the Vedas. Because if you look at things that the Buddha and Mahavir said, they weren't anti-Vedic. They were actually kind of uh, trying to streamline and simplify things. Now think about our history books. They actually start history there. And all the stuff before that, there's no names of people. That is ridiculous. That is unbelievable. But right, then we get Emperor Ashok, we get Gupta dynasty, we start getting some Islamic incursions from the West. Uh, as a result of 700 years of Islamic incursions in Northern India, we get the rise of uh, a pushback, and that's Shisha Dharma or Sikhism. And then later on, we get early European trade. It was just trade. It was just trade initially. Later on, it became political because they needed help from their governments. And that's where it became, you could call it a slow invasion, where they basically took over. And then finally, 1947 independence, which I will call an incomplete political independence because there's still much more work to do. So I think at this point, what I would like to do is go over my timeline. So I'm going to uh, jump away from the screen and show my timeline here in a second. So here's how I put together my timeline. It's a spreadsheet that I started when I was in college. So I was about 18, 19 years old. Originally, it was on paper, and then I moved it to an Excel spreadsheet. And it ends up being you know, well over 300 generations. It was not planned out. I started the spreadsheet backwards. OK, imagine. Everybody in India knows their community so well. I didn't know quite that well, right? People in India are very, very granular about who they are and all the fine grains. In America, we're a little bit sloppier. We're like, well, you're, you're Indian. And then after that, it's like, okay, well, maybe you're, you know, Marwari or Punjabi or Gujarati. And then beyond that, I don't know, whatever. 
Um, but in India, people are super specific, but I didn't have all that knowledge. So I started the spreadsheet backwards. I started with me, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and I started to go backwards. And each generation, I gave it 25 years, okay? 25 years a generation. I'm not talking about your whole life. I'm talking about your prime. From the time you're born to the time you kind of reproduce, approximately 25. Now, for today, here we are in 2021, people are getting married later and having kids later. So now the generation, that regnal period, they call it, might be 30 to 35 years, but for most of history, it was around 25 years. By the way, I compared it to other civilizations. Looks pretty good. I did a cross-correlation of royal and priestly dynasties. Synchronizes very well. Can't make this stuff up. Added in historical events. Makes sense. Synchronized it with archaeological data. Beautiful. I haven't seen archaeological data, which has busted this yet. Now, if I take the version of Indian history that I hear from other people, well, this happened 30,000 years ago, and this happened 22,164 years ago. How do we know that? Well, because of astrology or astronomy. I, no, I don't buy any of that stuff. I don't find it to be solid at all. This timeline, when I show it to you, you'll see it syncs with itself. It syncs with other civilizations. Um, and I haven't seen anybody break it yet. And I, once again, I created it when I was about 19, let's say 20, 55. So that's about uh, 35 years. And nobody has really broken it yet. So if you go to my websites, I run a number of websites. Um, so this is my New Dharma Foundation. This is my India History Online website. And if you go to the website and click on Royal Chronology, you can go here and you can click on the icon and you can download this. Now, the spreadsheet is zipped up because it's so large. So if I, if you, you won't fit on there. So if you look at it on the uh, left-hand side, these are generations. Now it starts with Vivasvata. And then you get to Manu, and then you get the two branches of the, fa the family, the solar and lunar dynasty. Now, why is that already generation 88? Is because we have some information. A lot of this is Puranic data that goes before then with different names. It may not be historical. It may not be factual. I do not know. I just put it down there just so that there's kind of, um, I, I just wanted to put it in writing and put it in some kind of order. Now, there's a concept of time that time is both linear and circular. And I think both are factual and very uh, scientific, in my opinion. On a short scale, time is linear because time is actually one of the dimensions of physics, right? As we're moving through taking action, uh, we're measuring time against it. So linear. But uh, has human civilizations gone through cycles of creation and destruction where civilizations might have been advanced and then they got wiped out for one reason or another and it went back to kind of Stone Age? Yeah, that's happened. So could that have happened more that we don't know about? Sure. Uh, we may find out more in the next 100 years. Who knows? So I put this all together in a spreadsheet. In the spreadsheet, you'll see these little red corners. These are comments. And the comments sometimes are like a page of data along with sources. So this spreadsheet is, I think, at least 10,000 cells of data. And everyone has a generational number, and it has an approximate year based on 25 years per generation. Now, think of it as an accordion. If the generations were actually 22.5 years on average or 27.9 years on average, then the history would be a little bit shorter, a little bit farther, but not much, not much. We're talking about hundreds of years of wiggle and a span of six to 7,000 years. So this thing is pretty accurate and I haven't seen people produce data that really you know, breaks it. Let me just jump ahead here. I'm gonna go all the way to the bottom and I'm gonna show you how I built this thing, which was backwards. So I started with me. Okay, I don't actually have a middle name, but I just put one in for fun. This is my father, Shamshinder, my grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather. These are the two who left Rajasthan and went to the eastern part of India in um, uh, 
uh, today it'd be called Bihar. And we have a couple generations going back to Mohan Lal. And that's where my name Mohanka comes from, Ka, like descendants of Mohan. Originally our name was Agarwal. And uh, so this goes back to the period of around uh, 1800. And so that's how I started building the timeline and just built it back and went back generation for generation for generation. And I started reading books, uh, particularly some uh, early books I read uh, 20, 30 years ago from uh, Prashotam Lal Bhargav to build up this history. Now I'm zooming past this really fast because there's actually literally too much information here, but you can go and download the spreadsheet and look at it on your own and see this. And once again, what you'll see, I'll go back here to where it gets kind of interesting, is uh, the start of the kind of famous or named royalty, which would be uh, Emperor Bharata. And this is where you get India being Bharat. And you can see that there was a long line of Puru Bharata kings, or you can call them tribal chieftains, maybe became kings. And then finally he became a king of kings uh, at that period. And then it goes down and you have a whole, and notice there's no gaps here, no gaps, no breaks. You go all the way down to epic number one, you get Sudas, who's the protagonist. And you can see all the Varshagira battles that happened uh, one or two generations later. Conflicts continue. Let's go down. No gaps, no gaps, no gaps. You get the Ajamid dynasty, keeps going down. And now we get Ram. And notice I'll say Dasha at the second. Sometimes in the timeline, I'll say a person's name and I'll say number one, number two, number three, because these names repeat throughout history. How many Rams and how many Krishnas were there, right? Many, many, many. And people get those confused. Or we talk about priestly families, right? We discuss that... Uh, uh, and the other talks, right? Uh, Vishwamitra, Vashist, uh, Bhargav, and all these different families uh, descended from Brigu. These are family names. It's like my last name, Mohanka. It's a family name. Uh, and some of these priestly families have kept their tradition intact for so many generations that uh, you could have a gap of one or 2,000 years and people are using the same uh, last name, same family name. And they're aligned with a similar dynasty of kings. So the priestly dynasties line up with the royal dynasties. We go from the Ramayana second epic you can see these, uh, no gap in the kings here, no gap. And now you can see Mahabharat, which I consider to be the third epic. So this is the epic trilogy. And by the way, you'll see here, Brihadbala, Brihadbala in the Mahabharat, who is a descendant, a direct descendant of, uh, of the people in the Ramayana. So there is a connection. Not only did Mahabharat mention Ramayana, but there's a genealogical connection. There's uh, in the Ramayana some hints of the previous uh, generations going back to the Dasharajniya. And the Dasharajniya, of course, goes back to the uh, kind of, you can say, the uh, beginning, really, of the power of the Purubharata dynasty with Emperor Bharata. So everything synchronizes with everything else. When there are royal dynasties who fought with each other and fought wars, those will beautifully work out and be synchronized in the timeline. I didn't make this stuff up. I just wrote down what I read, and it works out beautifully. If somebody wants to say that this is garbage and uh, show that's wrong, prove it, prove it. I've been saying that for 30 plus years, prove it. And I don't have people come back with specific information which can break this. What people have done, which is ridiculous, is they'll say, I have the date of one event. Who cares? Who cares if you have the date of one event? Give me the continuity. Give me the continuous history. Tell me everything that happened before that event, during that event, and after that event. And it better synchronize with everything else. And it better line up with archeological data because if it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why you would care. Um, but that's the kind of stuff uh, I get. And then we go down from the Mahabharata, and then we go down here and we get uh, the uh, Buddhist period coming up here. We got Mahavir, we get Buddha, first council of Buddhism, we go down here, we get Emperor Ashok, we get, uh, keep going down, <clears throat> Kushan Empire, 
I mean, it, there's just no gap in Indian history. There's always something going on somewhere in India. Uh, it's always been a very, very populous area, full of civilization, lots of activity. You get the Islamic invasions, raids of Mahmud of Ghazni, uh, Nalanda University destroyed. You get kind of uh, coming up soon here, uh, Vijayanagar Empire. Then you'll get the Mughal Empire. And kind of parallel with the Mughal Empire is the rise of Shisha Dharma Sikhism. And then you get the Europeans uh, do some trade and then make some incursions. And, uh, and then, you, you know, you get the modern era. Now, there's so much information I had uh, in these initial, uh, you know, 10 columns here that I couldn't fit it all. So what I started doing is sliding over to the right-hand side. And I still had more data. So I went further and went further and went further. Okay. So, I mean, what you're seeing here is, like I said, around 10,000 plus cells of data, many of which have comments, each which are paid. So there's a lot more than, you know, like 100 books worth of data inside this thing. In addition to this, I also put a tab for history of religions where I showed how things are kind of tied together. And this was highlighted by the other speakers you had earlier, talking about the Vedic and Dasharaj and how it was a priestly split with the Indian side winning. And we had devas and we had the Soma ceremony. And then the Western branch had, uh, they couldn't pronounce, the Persians can't pronounce S. So they don't say uh, Sindhu, they say Hapta Hindu. Uh, they couldn't pronounce uh, Sindhu River, so they call it Hindu. So it became Hindu River. All the people living and beyond it are Hindustan. It's Hindu people. That's where you get the word Hinduism. It's actually Sanatana Dharma. But anyhow, so the language we get and we have the split of the priests. And so on this side, you get the Zoroastrianism. And it had an influence on the Jews because obviously they were held in captivity by Persians. We all know that. And uh, you get concepts of uh, the Buddhist missionaries, which Conrad Els did some good work on. You get the Trinity. And, you know, you can see the whole history. So the world is very much... Um, related, uh, and uh, there's been a lot of cross-fertilization of uh, ideas. I put together kind of a spreadsheet of uh, world religions, kind of describing them on standard parameters. What's the population growth trend? When is it founded? What's the theistic practice, etc. I even put a couple of things for uh, Indian festivals. So this thing is really designed for an American audience, okay? So that was a little bit about my timeline. If you have the patience, I would encourage you to spend some time and look at it. And what I really like to do is get young people involved. Uh, we need to get the next generation um, open to this information and have a different version in their head. Uh, I teach a class in my local community here, and I've been doing that for about 11, 12 years now. And I teach young children. Uh, I call it my Indology class, but it's really about Indian history and Dharma. So that's a bit about the timeline. And once again, the epic trilogy, you can think of as the heart of it. And each of these represent historical turning points. Um, I also provided content for Francois Gauthier's museum in Pune. Uh, these, I've created 50 5-0 panels, museum panels that would be like, you know, poster size up on the wall. These are three as an example that one on the top there is kind of how India was formed geographically. I did one about Aryabhat. And obviously there were different ones. So I always labeled them one, two, three different ones historically. And I talk about the future. If you have a clear understanding of the past, if you have a clear respect and perspective on the past, um, what can that show you about the future? Well, what is the future going to be? I see Surrender, you've raised your hand. Give me five minutes to wrap up and then I'll take questions. Um, what does the future hold? Is it gonna be negative, right? If you look at the top left, there's an image of slums and the top right is COVID, which has been disastrous, not just for India, but for the world. Is there going to be ongoing wars on the western side with Pakistan, the eastern side with China? I think, and I'm going to be 
um, a bit of a contrarian. I think the, the future is going to be positive. I think it's going to be surprisingly positive. I think people today can't even imagine how positive it's going to be. Now, why do I say that? Number one, India is the largest democracy in the world, right? If some alien lands on this planet and says, take me to your largest democracy, they're not coming to America, they're coming to India. Is that a good thing? It's a wonderful thing. Democracy is chaotic, it's messy, it's corrupt, it's difficult, but you know what? It's the best system we've got of all the other terrible options. And because of that, I think there's a, a bright future because people get to have a voice. Um, the brutal efficiency of communism and Marxism and dictatorships looks good, uh, but it's disastrous in the long run. History has shown that. The economy is growing. Uh, COVID's given India a bit of a kick, but you know, COVID's given everybody a kick. I think India has learned the lessons from the past and uh, has a good, strong military. I think India's done, uh, forget about Pakistan, it's a small country, but India's done very well against China. I think we've seen that in the last couple of years. So I have uh, a little bit more faith in the Indian military. I think they need to build more weaponry locally and get very good and smart technologically to be able to export it as opposed to just spending money and buying it. But um, I think the trend line is positive. I think the key thing that India has actually that other countries don't have, and people don't realize how powerful this is, is soft power, cultural power. I really think in the future, not just the 21st, 22nd or, you know, century, but beyond, soft power is going to be lasting power. Hard power is going to be fleeting power. It's going to come and go. When it's there, it's going to look like you're everything. And then 100 years later, oh, they're gone. Oh, they're gone. What happened to those guys? So they're gone. But soft power has lasting power. So all of these cultural elements, right, from India, I think are going to, are going to be there long into the future. I always talk to people about a Star Trek future. I say, and I remember I'm an uh, engineer and I work in technology. We're going to be multiplanetary. And the concept for the last 10,000 years has been scarcity. Scarcity. There's not enough. Therefore, we have to fight over what little we have. And we have to kill each other because there's not enough. There's not enough land. There's not enough natural resources. There's not enough water. There's not enough food. There's not enough energy. There's not enough everything. Well, I think technology is going to develop. I don't think it's going to be linear. I think we're going to move to a position of abundance very soon, within 100 years. Abundance means there'll be so much that um, you, don't, you don't know what to do with it. And that's not just an India issue. That'll affect uh, everywhere. And I think with that, um, the future will be much more positive. I always tell people that uh, those cultural elements, the soft power of India, you can call it the Dharma, whatever, is going to be something that's going to have more of an influence on the future uh, than it has in the past. Because in the past, it was primarily an India slash Asian thing. I think it's going to be a global and even, you know, if we go out somewhere, it'll be uh, multiplanetary. So my uh, view is weird and uh, very, very optimistic. Some people might say too optimistic. Very glad to see you again. I am very yes. impressed with um, your timeline and um, how precisely it corresponds to two other timelines, the one of Srikantalageri, yeah. which does, is not as detailed as yours, but essentially also puts the Dasharajna battle uh, in about 2900 BC. Yeah. And, um, then there's another by Umapada Sen. I don't know if you know that. It's a book about the chronology of the Rig Veda based on astronomy. And there's so much nonsense in India based on astronomy. Right. But this one is really good. 
Mm. And so it has roughly the same timeline. Okay. So, so I mean, I think you know you make very good sense. Only you're a lot more complete than most others. So I mean, I I just want to uh, pay my respects. It's a really good job you've done. Thank you so, very much, Conrad. Okay. Means a lot. Means a lot coming from you. And I'm I'm happy also to hear your positive predictions. Let's be happy yeah. about those. Okay. I'm I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. Yep. I'll tell one funny story about optimism. This is kind of a side story. When I was a child, and I visited India many times, you know, I got family over there. So when I was a child one time, I was in, um, where were we? We were in Bhagalpur, Bhagalpur in, uh, in uh, Bihar. And I was maybe, uh, I don't know, seven years old, eight years old. And I was commenting to my, uh, my mamaji, my uncle. I said, man, these streets are terrible. It's all mud and and, uh, you know, cow crap and uh, people on scooters and uh, what's up with all this stuff. And he got really upset and he goes, you know, Neeraj, this is India and this is the way it is and it's never going to change and blah, blah, blah. And he had a very, very negative outlook. Well, if you go to India now, there's very good roads and they're building roads at extremely fast pace. So, you know, his negativity was unwarranted. I understand when you're in the middle of something, it's hard to be positive. And maybe that's why I have an advantage being an outsider and, and starting from ignorance is that uh, I can look at the big picture. I'm not, uh, I'm not necessarily living it every day. You talked about the India being a soft power and in 100 years it will rise to the top of the world. But uh, I at advanced age and the young people here in India are too impatient. In 70 years uh, we have lost uh, I mean, we lost uh, whatever softness we had in last 1500 years. So tell us how we can implore people to work harder, to, uh, to do more work so that they, they can rise at least to the Chinese level in economy and militarily. Well, I don't have any magic solutions, but I do think that as, uh, as India joins the world more, uh, that it will learn from the world. Now, it could learn bad things from the world, uh, but it could also learn good things from the world. So I would think that, you know, let's say you take a family who lives in a village and then they move to a city and they do some kind of simple jobs, but they get their kids educated and then their kids will start working from some corporation. Well, in that corporation, they're going to learn about uh, discipline. They're going to learn about um, competition. They're going to learn um, different ways of doing things. And that will have an impact on their personal life. And I think there'll be a spillover from their work life to uh, other parts of their life. And so that type of thing is one small microcosm that I think will slowly, slowly fan out. And I don't want to give the impression that I think in 100 years, India will be on the top. I said that uh, hard power can come and go in 100 years, but soft power will remain for centuries. So I don't know if India is going to be, you know, the world power in uh, 100 years. It's it's already a world power. Uh, you know, I can't predict what's going to happen, but I do think as it uh, gets more tightly integrated with the world economy, that the culture of people is uh, going to change. And um, if you see people being complacent, um, that might slowly change too. Not, not because of uh, some kind of top-down effort, but just people living their lives and uh, uh, slowly changing just because of uh, lifestyle changes being involved in the world.
I see it kind of more organic like that. And there's no guarantees of anything. My question basically is, let's say today the world opens up and asks India to present its real history, to document it basically. So where do we start from? Because uh, we, uh, when we go and listen to uh, different, uh, you know, uh, uh, different uh, people who have kind of mastery on the subject. So we have different timeline. So where do we build the consensus from? Where do we start? <clears throat> I'll give a very selfish answer. Start with my timeline. And here's why. I'm a complete outsider who started with nothing and I put it together just by comparing evidence. I don't work for a major university. Okay. I don't have a dog in this fight. Remember, other people you're going to talk to at major academic institutions in America, Canada, UK, Europe, India, uh, they are, they have positions, right? They're at universities. They may be trying to get tenure. Maybe they have tenure. Uh, they may have political positions. Um, so their analysis is going to be backed by uh, motives and in some cases backed by money, right? They have a job to keep. It's their career. For me, this is a sideline. I don't make a penny off of this. In fact, I put money into it and I don't want a penny off of this. Uh, and I don't have any political position. So start with my timeline, even if it's not perfect, uh, fine, start with it and then tell other people, hey, if you got something better than this guy's, prove it. Prove it and put the pressure on other people. Make them work for it. And I tell you, if you do that again and again and again and again, it's going to annoy the heck out of the other people. And slowly the situation is going to change. But if you try to go with one of the academics versions, now you're kind of aligning yourself with their power position. And they might have academic peers and academic enemies, and it gets to be a big mess. And this, by the way, is something that Rajiv Malhotra over here has highlighted for the last you know, 20 something years is that there's a lot of academic kind of uh, gangs or cabals, and they are the ones who are pitching a wrong version of history. And you can't even argue with them because they're too powerful. You know, uh, you know, you get major universities like Harvard or in the uh, UK, you get Oxford, in India, you get Jawaharlal in their university. These are powerful people. And so um, they don't care about getting the right history out. They care about the position of power. So I'll selfishly say again, Consider me to be a nobody. Start with my version of history. And then if other people say it's garbage, prove it. Prove it. Say if Neeraj is such an idiot, prove it. Show me. Show me your evidence. Show me why this is wildly incorrect. And uh, that will be a very good starting point. And I'll say again, get young people involved. Get young people involved. Everywhere in India, get young people involved. And if they think my version of history is nonsense, prove it. I dare you. That's where we start. Next question. Uh, Neeraj, uh, a wonderful talk. And uh, thanks to Sangam Talks also. I've been following it. And possibly this is my second uh, live interaction. Uh, I have three points to ask you. Number one, uh, you, you mentioned about uh, uh, the timelines of Mahabharata, which somewhere uh, is not in co consonance with uh, what we heard from uh, Neil Kant Oak, Nilesh Oak. I've been following him also. Uh, second, you use the word mythology against Ramayana. Why do you feel it is mythology? Why shouldn't we start talking it? Or, or, or have I taken it wrong because I joined the talk yeah, later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, I'll okay. answer that. Give me the third question. Right. So, uh, of course, so this was the first question, rather. It, I, yeah. I had the two parts of it. Second, 
Of late, we saw, you know, uh, the Hindu religion has coming in uh, in a big way, even in Middle East, wherein uh, the Saudi Arabian government uh, given uh, access to uh, the Hindu scriptures and positively added yoga to their uh, syllabus in schools and Mahabharata and Ramayana being taught there and uh, even uh, a temple being made there. Oh, well, that's a very welcome thing. But I feel, uh, and what's your, I want your comment on that, I feel that uh, somewhere it's always been the religion which has been guiding the politics uh, right from the beginning, uh, right, right, ever since the Islam grew and uh, it spread all across the world. Uh, so somewhere uh, the, this religion was always guiding the politics and today also it's happening the same all across. Uh, why aren't we people vocal about it? Why aren't we people speaking very, very vehemently about it and saying right on face that this uh, government is being guided by so-and-so? Like we all are aware about, I've been following, uh, in fact, under to courses of uh, Rajiv Malhotraji's also and have, have read his books. Uh, I'm, I'm very clear about it, that the missionaries and the job in India and for that matter, the Islamic spread, etc., has mm -hmm. absolutely been uh, motivated with the religious thoughts. So today, even for that matter, even a, a slightly later, the communism came up. So somewhere communism also is in, in a hidden way uh, supports, I don't know, I feel so, Kerala, I've been in Kerala for the last three years and I've seen it's actually no more God's own state. It's actually, uh, you know, we, we will find anarchy there and we're going to have civil unrest in coming times. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want your thoughts on that point. Uh, why aren't we so vehemently openly speaking about religious heads? It may be the Pope, it may be the Islamic people sitting at various places, it may be our uh, people at our places, whatever. So first one, Mahabharata timeline. Nilesh Oak, I don't care for his work. I'm going to say that. Uh, he's one of those people that likes to give a date for one event. And uh, that's very sloppy and very careless. And that's what I'll call historical omissions. Ask Nilesh Oak to give the full history of everything that happened in detail before the Ramayana and after the Ramayana and back it uh, as it synchronizes with archaeological data. And what he has will fall apart. Uh, I did not say the Ramayana was mythology. I said it has mythological elements more so than Mahabharata, which is completely logical. If something is farther back in time from where I am standing, it's going to be foggier and foggier and foggier. So Mahabharata is closer to me. Ramayana is farther from me. Dashirajna is so far away that it's lost in the fog. That's what I meant. Not that I said it's mythology. You know what? Mythology does not exist generally without history. Something happened and then people talk about it. And then they make stories about it. And over thousands of years, the stories grow very, very long, right? That's normal. And that's actually another form of evidence, by the way. If you see something that has lots and lots of stories about it, that means that it happened, it was important, and there's a big time gap where people had time, generations, to create stories. I don't, we have something in America called the telephone game. I don't know what it's called in India, where children sit around in a circle and you whisper something in somebody's ear. And then they take what they heard and whisper it in the next kid's ear, and it goes all the way around the circle. By the time it gets back to the original person, they're like, I never said that because the little the kids misinterpret it or make up their own funny stuff as they go around in the circle. So that's kind of what happens over many, many generations. People tell stories and uh, it has its own um, value or confusion. So that's my comment on two. 
third one is a very big question. This is not an easily answered question of, so does religion impact politics? Yeah, obviously. I mean, look, remember what I said, the big picture, and I'm looking at it kind of technologically. Think of humans as uh, the apex creature on this planet, on the surface of this planet. We've been struggling to try to manage the resources. And we've done, you know, constantly we're doing a better job. But sociologically, how do you keep people together? It's sort of like, uh, this is another American phrase, herding cats, right? It's, it's sort of like trying to, get, uh, it's trying to get all these children to get to do stuff. It's very difficult. Humans are like children, right? We're very uh, crazy and we want to do our own thing. And uh, so you have to have sociological systems to do that. So for a lot of human history around the agricultural revolution, it was feudalism, right? You had the king, you had the priestly clan, you had the merchant class. People call this a caste system or Varnashradharma. Every civilization had it, by the way. There's nothing unique about that. And uh, you have to keep it together. So taking these spiritual concepts and wrapping them in a religion is a way to control people. And so, yes, of course it impacts politics. Uh, but I think we're headed for some major changes. I think this thing he mentioned about the opening for Hindu Dharma or, or called Sanatana Dharma in uh, Middle East is just the beginning. Um, they started allowing women to drive cars over there. Some stuff is changing very slowly. Why people aren't yelling about it? Usually it's money. Usually it comes down to money. In America's case, uh, the average American can't stand uh, these uh, you know, ways of thinking, but uh, you know, it's an oil business. And uh, so a lot of these things come down to money or maybe you, know, you sell them tons of weapons every year so you don't wanna lose that business. It could represent $100 billion, it's not trivial. So a lot of these things come down to money, but do I think that's gonna change? Absolutely. I think, you know, forget about a hundred years. I think within 50 years, we're gonna have a technological revolution in energy production, which will go way the heck beyond solar wind. Solar wind or a joke. It'll be something as good or better than nuclear fusion. And when we get to that point, oil will be pretty much unnecessary. And then when we get to that point, we'll have enough energy to desalinate the oceans and get as much water as we want. And the water supply on this planet is essentially infinity because you take the water, you use it, it goes back into the ground, it goes back in a cycle, it's infinite. So if you have infinite clean energy, infinite water, you can grow as much food as you want to, a lot of things will change and that will affect culture and that will affect religion. And I think Dharma has a very good opportunity to step into that new situation or vacuum. Um, so that's why I'm optimistic. It's not because I think people will magically become good. We won't, we're, we're kind of intelligent animals. I think it's uh, technology is going to provide some options which we can't even think about today. I mean, look at India. People were saying India would starve to death in the 1960s. It's impossible to feed all those people. Well, let's see, the population's far higher than the 1960s and India's a food exporter. But what happened? What well, was the green revolution? What is that? It's technology. Um, and then you look at the whole IT revolution. People in India are doing IT work for places around the world. Who could have saw that 50 years ago? Nobody would have. And it's a huge moneymaker. So technology moves forward, things change. And uh, you know that's why I'm optimistic. So is a religion uh, kind of a foundation for politics? Of course. Uh, is that gonna change? In a big way, in a big way. And people who are flexible will change with it. And people who are inflexible will go out of business, they'll be gone. They'll, you know, within a hundred years, there'll be, there'll be history and uh, you'll read about them in a history book and they won't be anymore. There's major, major, major changes coming down the pipeline. He mentioned something about the Pope. Uh, they're in for a real storm over there. Um, I won't say any more than that. So uh, you mentioned herding cats and I think uh, fixing this timeline is somewhat like herding cats. And 
you see the uh, problem that i see when i see uh, timelines in indian history like the one you have done versus something from say mesopotamian or egyptian history is that our timelines are actually bounds they are not you know as precise it seems to me at least as you have there because uh, they actually have material evidence or inscription and manuscripts and so on perhaps because of the weather because of the medium like clay tablets that you can actually get these things whereas Think for of. us we have puranas the puranas the earliest manuscripts you know physically speaking they are not older than medieval times simply because of the perishable nature of the medium right so i'm wondering how, how, what will it take to gain more precision unless i mean besides new discoveries and new diggings i mean what will it take to gain more precision into our timelines rather than fixing upper and lower bounds like saying that you know saraswati dried up now so it has to be before that mm -hmm. and get more precise than that do you see any hope yep. for that precision i see tons of hope for that so what needs to happen is the indian government or somebody needs to spend billions of dollars with a b not m on archaeology there's a ton of human settlements and cities that are buried underground in india and in pakistan and maybe afghanistan right now um that haven't been dug up uh those can be dug up and those can be carbon dated and i'm sure that if you do that with many 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 locations you're going to find a couple of clay tablets here and there which are going to give you some hard evidence we already do have a little bit of hard evidence right there was some clay tablet found in uh central asia that which shows the matani uh, uh influence and that's carbon dated and there's been some things in india so I think it was primarily an oral culture they didn't put things in writing they didn't do things in stone they used mud brick india's tropical place so maybe they used lots of wood and of course that's gone um you know so i think that's what it's going to take uh we are stuck that's a great question you asked and i came to that realization decades ago and it's super frustrating that we are stuck with bounds of upper and lower right now until we get more archaeology remember what conrad was saying about uh, and others were saying about ayodhya Oh, Ayodhya is all made up, doesn't exist, blah blah blah. Because they didn't allow anybody to dig. And once they allowed them to dig, then they found the Mandir and they found layers of civilization under there and they're like, "Oh, uh, okay." And then they stopped talking. Well, duh, we need more of this all over India. And you guys are sitting on a gold mine over there. There's been so much population for so many thousands of years. Dig, 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 carbon date, and uh you probably find something good down there but um that's going to take a lot of money and in some cases it might be technically difficult cuz of water table and stuff but you know we got the technology today you just got to spend the money honestly unfortunately i think that's the only real solution is hard data that you can carbon date maybe some clay tablets maybe some inscriptions maybe some bits of things which we could uh, somebody could maybe find the magic rosetta stone of uh, of bharat and then you could uh, understand the indus script there's a lot of questions still remaining that could get things more specific um but uh i think that's what needs to be done it's not easy that's what needs to be done so i have two simple questions and a uh, short questions i will take first is why we are very much confused between rama and mahabharat datings it's by this very lot of confusion and our people also have a confusion it's not like that foreigners have confusion or some else have confusion our people also have a confusion some are saying 5000 some are saying this and that so can you just clarify on that and uh, my second question is are all people on the cus are uh, civilization i am i recently met a person who was cousin are ayurveda and all so how to deal with them and there are people only 
So you know what? That is, uh, uh, that's not true. Yeah, anytime you get to it, see America is a group of ethnicities, right? <clears throat> I remember going to a Jewish gathering and some people showed up late and the local Jewish people, they're like, oh my God, I can't stand Jews. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, they're always late. They always follow Jewish time. If you go to a black gathering in America, what do they say? Oh, black people are always late. People always custard on people. That's, so that's, let's, you have to see other ethnicities and you understand everyone does it. That's human nature. So, all right. So to part of your thing about um, Ramayana, Mahabharata and uh, Puranas. And so as the other two speakers mentioned before in the series, uh, Puranas are not a good source of historical data because they were not designed. Uh, they're not really oriented toward that. They're oriented toward uh, stories about people and about relationships and about morality and customs and traditions. And that's their value. Their value is not history. Whereas the Vedas were a photocopy of the past, literally. The priests had to memorize this stuff, forwards, backwards, and forwards. And, uh, and whatever they were memorizing, in some cases they didn't even understand it, they just memorized it. So that's fantastic. That's a photocopy of the past. Even any person who studies history who maybe uh, doesn't like India, doesn't have any respect for it, they will agree. It's a photocopy of the past. So the Vedas are a better way to judge this. So the epics are not very clearly highlighted in, in the Vedas, right? And so when we look at the traditions of the Ramayana Mahabharata, they have all kinds of stories and people in different parts of India added their own, uh, you know, you say Namak Mirta and they added their own local flavor and this and that. So that's why you're getting so many variances locally. Once again, I will say that that's a form of evidence of how old it is. Something is old because it's been around for thousands of years and people have had layers and layers and layers of stories. And you're seeing the 20th layer of story. And it's hard to unpack those layers and look at the bottom and say, well, what actually happened? You know, where did this happen geographically? And who are the families involved? And who are the priests involved? And who fought who? And who won and who lost? And and even tougher questions. Why did somebody do what they did? Because we're left with whatever interpretation was recorded historically. Who knows if that was actually what happened back in those days. So it's very difficult to see. But um, once again, um, you can start with my timeline. You can read all those different sources, all the great work of people. And, uh, and you know, don't worry. Here's what I'll say. If you feel overwhelmed that it's too much stuff, that it's too much information, uh, and if you feel overwhelmed that there's so much history that there's a lot of misunderstanding, don't be overwhelmed. Don't worry about it. Uh, just start clean and, uh, and start doing some reading and studying and don't worry about it. If we all just focus on learning things and teaching that to young people, uh, each generation that comes up will have a better and better version. And, um, you know, you don't have to, you, you know, when you transfer things to the next generation, you can transfer knowledge. You don't have to transfer baggage. And by baggage, I mean, like, you know, we all have family issues and family problems. And I can't stand those people. And those cousins are terrible. You have to transfer that stuff to kids. Transfer knowledge to your kids. Let them, let them start out a little bit more clean. What's the proof that the Sarajnia happened in 2900 BCE? Are there any evidences to prove it? Yeah, if you look at the timeline and you look at the generations of uh, royalty, the, the royal generations, and you look at the priestly generations, and you look at the, uh, and I'm actually looking at a chart in front of me of the, the different books of the Rig Veda, it's pretty, it's bound. 
you know, it can't be much earlier than maybe 3100 BC, and it can't be much later than maybe 2500 BC. It's, it's pretty bound. And uh, if you look at hydrology of the rivers and where battles were fought and what the geographic situation is combined with the, uh, the information we have literary, it gives you a pretty good approximation. So I would say it's a safe approximation. Um, you know, once again, getting back to the question asked a few minutes ago, uh, I think it was Ramakrishna asked it, but I mean, we get some uh, more hard data, more archaeological data that we can carbon date. That would be wonderful. Um, and that's going to take a lot of money and time to dig and find some more. Another thing that annoys me about, this is a personal pet peeve, I'll tell you, about Indian history is some of these concepts like putting in the, even the religious books, putting in the names of cities and say, hey, I'm, I'm in this city and I'm meeting with this king and this priest. And now I'm walking four hours to the next city uh, northwards, meeting with this king and this priest. It would have been wonderful if somebody had that kind of reference. And we get a little bit of that, but not too much. If we had more of that, it would have really helped us. Uh, but for some reason, people weren't thinking that way. Uh, I'm an engineer, so I would have loved it if somebody drew a map. For God's sakes, draw a map. If somebody had a map of 4000 BC, how much would that have helped us? Um, we don't have it, you know, and it's, it's particularly if they put the map in stone, that would have been beautiful, but we don't have it. So we have to work with the data we got. Thank you so much for the session, but I'll be honest, I missed a part of it. And my request to Sangam Talks would be if we can, um, you know, pre-phone the session by half an hour or postpone because it somehow clashes with other things. Now, coming to my question, not question rather, did I misunderstood when you said that we can't look at our history and use astronomical reference, because then when I listen to uh, Professor Mrigundar Venod uh, or Raju Vedam, I, I, I get to understand our history better. Of course, our astronomy is captured in the form of a story. So we first need to you know, decipher what the story is about and then read about it. So did I misunderstood this part where you said astronomy cannot be a reference to read your history? If you could just No, you didn't that. misunderstand. Yeah, you didn't misunderstand. I'm not a big fan of the astronomical method. Now, if you have the astronomy and it correlates with the literary data and the archaeological data, then I have no problem with it. But too many times people bring up astronomical information in isolation, not related to anything else. And then they'll go one level deeper of stupid and say, I'm going to give the astronomical reference for this event. I've heard people give me a give a talk and say, in 5,321 BC, on May 4th, Ram walked across a field and picked up a flower. Well, how do you know that? Oh, based upon the alignment of the star. Really? That kind of stuff, you know, just shatters my, it just blows my brain up. Look, if somebody, and I like uh, uh, Raj Vedam's talk, it's good stuff. If you have astronomical data that's reasonable and that correlates with other kinds of harder data, literary information, archaeological data, fine. But it cannot be the source. It's just not reliable. And listen, we have data that all human civilization happened in about in the last 10,000 years. We don't have data of a human civilization 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago. Okay, maybe it existed, but we don't have evidence of it. So if somebody's giving you dates and they're going back super duper far, if you go to 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 BC in India, you get a little bit of agricultural evidence here and there, some basic farmers. You don't find huge golden cities and you don't find that in, in uh, Egypt or Mesopotamia either. So has to be some common sense here. I mean, it's just, I, look, I've shown my timeline to people and they go, well, your timeline's wrong because back in those days, people used to live 500 or 1,000 years, not 100 years like we do today. 
What am I supposed to say to that? How can I take that with a straight face? And this is the kind of stuff that's peddled to the public, right? I mean, we, you have to use a little common sense. Look, if people lived a thousand years ago back then, show me the evidence. And if they did, I want to figure out how the heck they did it so we can live longer today. I mean, we have clear blessings of people in ancient literature that may you live to be 100 because that was a big deal. Most people didn't make it to 100. They croaked long before then. And that's what we see now. So, you know, in general, I don't find astronomical data a good source. If it's there and it aligns with other things and doesn't contradict them, fine. But standing alone, no. But why, Neeraji? Quick question. Because, yeah. because we are a planet that is a sphere or spherical, right? And we're revolving around the sun. And this whole solar system is in motion in the Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is in motion, right? And there are billions and billions and billions of galaxies and everything's in motion, right? We are right now, as we're talking, traveling at tens of thousands of miles an hour. Everything's circular, everything's moving. So somebody can find an astronomical thing and they can show clearly that it was 2,800 BC. And then somebody else can look at that exact reference and say that means 28,000 BC because there's cycles. That's why it's, how can you hang your hat on that? I mean, really, it's got to line up with something else that's more specific. And the literature we have, this is the blessing of India. India is a literary empire, right? Maybe Egypt, they carved stuff in stone, but India is a literary empire. So look at the literature, see how it correlates with archaeology. And then you can take a look at astronomy. But I'm not a fan of just looking at astronomy alone and certainly not for a event, an event. Come on. Yeah, but there is still a, a fair bit of evidence of, I mean, that's what modern um, astronomy software does, right? It gives you precise locations of constellation stars. It actually maps the, you know, whatever we know of the, of the skies and going back, you know, so one of the questions I asked Nilesh, and I don't care whether he's right or no, that's not the point. But the point was that how far has he gone back? Did he see repetition of the, for example, the Arundhati? Right. I don't care whether, like you said, you don't have a dog in the fight. I don't either. So, yeah. you know, the point is, I mean, I'm just curious. Right. And so right. Raji's, for example, um, his in one of his lectures, and I don't quite understand it very well, but you could only see Augusta, for example, from a specific point somewhere near Kanyakumari. Yeah. You know, and so he was able to go back in time and actually say that this event could have been only in this sort of a time zone. And then he tries and correlates that with oceanography, for example. Right. And so that's very, very interesting. And I, I find it it's, it's very interesting. It looks great. But what's the result? If he comes up with ridiculously far dates, like if he comes up with based on my astronomical analysis, like he's saying that, uh, you know, that Mahabharat was 3000 BC and Ramayana was 5000 BC, and he never even mentions Dasharajna, then Light should go off. Hello. Right. And like you said, he hasn't told you about all the cycles. Of course. Ask him. But, but, you know, there's new evidence coming up all the time. The Saraswati is drying up itself has yeah. probably happened in phases. And I recently oh, yeah. read some hydrology data a paper on yeah. academia or was it on ResearchGate? I don't know. Which actually states that the first drying up of Saraswati is 19,000 B.C. And so, you know, when it was in full flow, I mean, that's the right, right. of the river. And then right. it sort of dries up, comes back again. All yep. of this is happening. So we don't know oh, yeah. 
when for example the rig veda towards the later end if i'm not wrong is actually okay. talking that the saraswati is beginning to dry up or yeah in mahabharat refers to saraswati you you don't Inashan, know yeah. is right so we have upper and lower bounds and we're dealing with approximations and once again i'm not 100% against astronomical data but it's got to correlate with other data and yeah. you have to ask the people who are coming up with the stuff the hard questions yeah. nilesh nilesh that's wonderful work you've done can you tell me when the dasharajni happened oh you're not familiar with it hello hello yeah got it i think you know? i think that's the basic stuff takeaway. basic stuff yeah so i mean that's the big takeaway for us and all the listeners here and perhaps who will be listening to this video that we we have to construct this timeline really right and um, or or yeah. somebody has put 20 30 years of work into it yes absolutely start from there start from there you can yourself add new exactly. data if there is new data start with mine and then if mine is junk tear it apart i dare you but i'm telling you the odds are it's not going to be torn apart people will find additions to mine people might find some mistakes in mine yeah and that's great tell me but the general scope of it i don't think is going to change much not much yeah and we got to find a lot of students phd students who we do not have unfortunately actually working on this 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 okay and that brings up that brings up another uh thing uh i i'm in sales i'm in tech sales so i live every quarter right we have to hit our quarterly numbers i'm all about the money and uh so if you want to have archaeological work in india you need to spend the money and like i said billions of dollars not millions and if you want to have these young phd students and get a whole army of them all over india and forget about india the whole world i want white european people north american people south america i want people all over the world studying this you have to have money and there has to be a conveyor belt a pipeline of money i need to be a young person and somebody says look if you go into this field we're going to help you with college um you're going to get we're going to help you with your postdoc work you're going to have a job afterwards you're going to have a whole career okay i'm going to look in the future and i see money not tons of money but just enough to live comfortably uh, then I'll do it but if somebody says hey if you want to do this stuff you'll be doing wonderful service to humanity okay how much am i going to make nothing you'll be poor your whole life oh hell with that i'm going to go work in it and so that's why when people critique indians and say well you know they've all done this and they've done that and they don't care about the country no they don't they're trying to eat i get it you know so the people who have power and by the way as you know there are people in india who have tens of billions of dollars like the ambani family If they want to put their money where their mouth is, you don't have to build a hundred million dollar mandir. What you can do is create a hundred million dollar academic fund for young people to get on board to do this kind of research to generate the future of India. Okay, that's what it will take. You need to have a fund for archaeology. Maybe the government's not going to get off the rear and do it. They have yeah. a private fund and do it. It's going to yeah. take money. Completely agree. Completely and. Yeah. Uh, one of our earlier speakers and uh, padmashri awardee uh, shri uh, t hanuman choudhury actually mentioned that companies have to come forward and treat this not csr in his uh, world view is not corporate social social responsibility he says corporate spiritual responsibility towards india so yes yes exactly exactly and that's a cultural change and that's a change that will happen uh very slowly but it'll happen to india the culture will change you don't do it because it's a goody two shoe do it because it's a smart thing to do i always say that when you look at history don't think of good versus evil think of smart versus stupid 
And there's a lot of stupid. And we can do better than that. I don't have a question. I just still going back to my point, you know, where you said astronomy cannot be the standalone proof. I agree with that. But the scripture and astronomy, if they come together, and if you don't have an astrological, uh, you know, archaeological proof attached to it, can it be discarded? I don't agree with that part. But then again, I really yeah. don't have that much knowledge. I mean, yeah, so it, uh, there may not be archaeological data for everything, but there's often literary data. So you have to have some type of correlation. Now, the problem with taking astronomical references in literature is sometimes they're open for interpretation. Some of the things in there, somebody could interpret that we're talking about a given heavenly body versus a different one. Or maybe it's rotating eastward and somebody else says it's rotating westward. So because there's interpretation, uh, there's wiggle room in there. And that's why it could be a problem. That's why I said I'm against it standalone, but if it correlates to something else, maybe not, maybe there's no archaeology, but how about correlate to the king's list or the priestly list? Then you've got something there. Otherwise, you got to use your common sense. If they do a wonderful, wonderful analysis and they come up with numbers that are ridiculous, use some common sense. Would you please highlight the existing archaeological evidences so that uh, we can just, you know, match up your with your astonishing work? And I am also an archaeologist. So what oh. kind of... Yes. So we need more people like you. I'm in studying. I mean, I'm not, I'm just a student. So okay. I just need your message to what kind, uh, what direction you want for uh, getting a better result and, you know, uh, something. So let me I ask you a question. With. Yeah, let me ask you a question since you're the yes. archaeological expert here. Uh, what's the budget like right now in the government department you're working at? Do you have enough budget to do proper work or do you feel like your or other people's hands are tied? Yeah, this this problem exists. It it's very much in Indian. Okay. Yeah, it's it's like around twenty thousand to thirty thousand, and that's not appropriate. Yeah, well, you've answered your own question. Then I mean, I do have archaeological data inside my timeline. You can go look in it. There's tons of it in there. I just um, want, except that I just want. What are your uh, archaeological? What are those archaeological evidences which can help in your collaboration to your work? I just wanted that. I, I mean, if you can name any or two or three examples. Well, we all know about the cities that were, you know, like uh, Kalibangan and Rakikari and a lot of these Kanweri, uh, I don't even can you pronounce it. So many of these ancient sites have been uh, dug up and we can see the layers of civilization, right? Um, you know, your should be your hero, Bibi Lal or S.R. Rao. Look at the work they did. My goodness. Um, that could be your life goal to do kind of work they did. You know, they took stuff that people thought was make-believe and they dug it up and they found out, whoop, there's layers of human civilization there. And you keep digging lower and lower and you go back in time. So we do have plenty of data. What's kind of annoying is when we're digging up sites, those sites always don't have a name. Like they don't have, like this city was referred to in the Ramayan. You know, uh, it'd be nice to get more of those names. I, I would like to see some of that happen. I don't know if anybody's got the smarts to kind of figure that out. But uh there's just a ton of population in India. I mean, once again, the size of Indian civilization was equal to Egypt and Mesopotamia combined. It was bigger than Egypt and Mesopotamia combined. There were a ton of people thousands and thousands of years ago. They all built villages and towns and cities. Okay, so we just got to dig to find it. And even if they built it out of wood, who cares? They still had pottery. They still made fire pits. We have the data. We can carbon date it. Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of stuff. So we have some hydrological data of when rivers dried up or when they diverted when they moved, that helps us date. We have uh, 
human settlements, we have cities, and uh, that's you know valuable data, and that's uh, carbon dated. Uh, one area of very uh, interest that's kind of developing now is genetic data. We can look at uh, our genes to kind of look at human flows. I don't know if it's granular enough. I don't think it'll go down to like the level of 100 years. It might be you know very large swaths of history. So, but I mean, you've kind of answered your own question with the budgetary thing. If that's not there, if the money's not there, the work's not going to happen. Um, the idea of stuff happening on a voluntary basis is is nonsense. I'll tell you one of my pet peeves. You know, sometimes in the U.S. here we have uh, crowds get together, and people will talk about doing all this work. And uh, and you know, I'll raise my hand and say, "Is there any budget for any of this stuff?" And they'll say, "Oh no, no, we, everybody should care. It should be volunteer effort." And I'm like, "Yeah, right. Everybody's busy working, raising a family. Come on, you know, if you if there isn't a budget for things, things aren't going to happen." So, Aman, getting back to your point. If your department and the government doesn't have money and they can't pay even you properly, it's going to be tough going. Uh, and so maybe the, maybe the solution is corporate sponsors. Maybe you're going to have to get in communication with these you know, very, very rich people and uh, get them to open up their wallet to do some of this work. Because this is super duper important. You know, I have found there's a mindset of uh, they like to see something physical, like a physical Monday. It's a physical thing you can look at and say, aha, I built it. I get it. But uh, the whole idea of software is more important than hardware. Ideas are more important than you know, events. That needs to be at the top of people's minds. So you need to get some of those people to uh, put some money forward so that uh, people like yourself, Amon, can, uh, can do that research. So that just restates what I said before. Hi, uh, I I just wanted to understand that. I mean, I know in India there is no budget and things to for uh, intelligent people to get into history and academia. So most of the smart people get into the STEM. So how yep. about the Hindus who are in US? I mean, most of them I have seen are also getting into either uh, STEM or technology, right? Are yep. to get an objective narration or anything happening there to bring the smart of the smartest of the smart to come and counter Audrey and people like that? Yeah, I mean, it's happening. It takes time, right? I'm, I'm STEM. I did electrical engineering, bachelor's and master's, and I, and I work uh, in sales. Um, I, I work for money. Uh, so I'm very normal. But then, you, you know, I'm going to retire at some point, and, uh, and I'm just going to devote myself to this 100%. And the reason why I'll be able to is because I have, I'll have a retirement means. If I was poor, I wouldn't be able to. If you look at somebody like Rajiv Malhotra, he got wealthy very early and he's dedicated his whole life to this stuff. And, uh, and he's a smart guy and he does smart work and he challenges uh, existing uh, thinking. So, uh, you know, there's more people like us out there. And uh, I don't think people in India should feel guilty about working to, uh, to earn a living um, because that's just, you know, what it takes. So, are people in uh, technology and medicine and business over here? Yep. But do they also, on the side, do some work uh, on these areas? Yeah, they do. They do. And, uh, and I think people in India can do that, too. I think, you know, one thing people can do, and it's very hard to do, is try to live a 360-degree life. So you've got your career. You've got your family. You've got your hobbies. Um, and, uh, you know, this can be your hobby and your passion to put some time into this. Is it the same as being full-time? No, but not everybody can do that. But if you get lots of people doing a little bit, that work can add up. 
um, versus a lot of people I know are kind of boring. I'd call them boring people. They do their work and I ask them, so what else are you doing? Nothing. But what do you do outside of work? Nothing. So are you a human being or am I talking to a robot here? A lot of people are like that. So to open up, have some hobbies, do some other stuff. Uh, life can be much richer for you. Did we lose a lot of information due to Islamic invasions? Many of our ancient universities were destroyed. Ancient temples yep. had many inscriptions giving a lot yep. of hard data, which was lost by demolitions by iconoclast Islamists. And later, many artifacts were smuggled as well. So yes. we lost a lot. How do we find the archaeological evidences there? Yeah, so there's still a lot of data. <clears throat> um, there's still a lot of data, but yes, a lot was lost. And by the way, India is not unique. I've heard estimates that the number of Indians killed over a thousand year period is between 20 and 80 million. And so people call that the Hindu Holocaust or the Indian Holocaust. Um, and, uh, you know, this comes down to the guns versus butter equation. You have to have a good military to defend yourself. And back in those days, they had very localized military and they didn't have kind of one Indian empire. Uh, essentially, uh, right, you had Emperor Ashok and then his children and grandchildren, everything kind of fell apart and he ended up becoming dueling kingdoms. Not a good situation. They should have had one empire. It should have been an empire. And they would have been able to defend themselves from all of this kind of stuff. Instead, you had small, small kingdoms and they lost out. That kind of slaughter happened many places in the world. There was a huge library in Alexandria, Egypt. It was one of the best. It was probably the best in the world at the time it existed. And back in those days, they used to put things on scroll. It was all burnt to the ground. So what can you do, right? If you lose a war, you lose everything. You lose not only, um, when you lose a war, a lot of times, you lose not only uh, buildings, but you, you lose your elite people. So all the kings and all the priests will get murdered. And uh, you're left with kind of the middle class people who may not even understand what the heck the elites were working on. <clears throat> so there's a gap. And so that happened. Uh, but, you know, whatever happened, happened. You can't go uh, back and uh, can't go now and just cry about it. You got to move forward. Um, there's still a lot of information. There's still a lot of literature. Uh, one of my friends, Vishal Agrawal, and I, we kind of help out one guy, Ajit Gargeshwari young guy in India is going around scanning in documents and you have to scan them in fast because they're deteriorating uh, the humidity and everything. They're, uh, they're like a uh, palm leaf or their other kinds of uh, parchment and they're deteriorating. So he's going in, running around and scanning them in. So work like that has to be done. The government once again should put big money behind it, but they're not. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically what it is. So is a lot lost. Yes. Is there still a lot there now? Yes. See, we are able to read all the, the, the calligraphic, uh, Languages of uh, Egyptian civilization, Mesopotamian civilization. Uh, the Harappan uh, script yes. is, has not yet been read. Right. Uh, I was talking to one of my friends, uh, and uh, once I, we happened to meet uh, Okji also on that. So I'm not going on to that uh, dating of, you know, based on the astronomical uh, standard, because you have already discussed a lot. Uh, uh, what happens that uh, per se, uh, we see that there are many uh, astronomical evidences in the tablets found in Harappan uh, culture, Harappan civilization. Uh, is it a conscious effort not to read the Harappan script from your point of view? Because I, I, I believe so, that there is not much effort put into reading the Harappan uh, script. Because that will again uh, give a lot of light. That will throw a lot of light on the Indian civilization. And uh, quoting Bhagwan Singh uh, and his book uh, Harappan Civilization and Vedic uh, Sanskriti. Okay, he has correlated lot many things with the Harappan civilization. Uh, 
uh, which probably corroborate to your timeline. So my point is that is there any conspiracy theory behind not reading uh, the Harappan script? So Lalit, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think there are a lot of people trying different methods to try to decipher it. Nobody's had any luck yet. Um, common sense would tell you that it's probably going to align with some kind of Vedic Sanskrit or pre-Sanskrit, some type of relationship there. It's not going to align with something else from Southern India or some other country or something, because uh, that's where it is. Uh, but I haven't seen any decipherment yet. People are waiting, crossing their fingers for an Indian Rosetta Stone. If something like that comes up, it'll be game over. Uh, but nobody's found it yet. I don't think there's a conspiracy theory. The only conspiracy theory is people aren't spending enough money on all of this stuff. And I'll give you an example of China. Now, China is a different case. They don't, they're not a free country, right? They're communists. So they're, it's basically a, a very, very, I would call evil type of government. And thank God India is a democracy. And you could, should consider it an unbelievable uh, point of pride that the most, uh, you know, soon to be the most populous country on earth, despite all of its problems, is still a democracy. Should be damn proud of that. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Running a democracy is impossible, even here in America. And India man manages to do it, okay? It defies almost logic that it's a democracy. But the downside is that it's hard to get budget for things. So China has, and Rajiv Malhotra has described this very well, China has allocated tons of money to spreading their culture throughout the world through their Confucius centers. And I'll tell you, if you meet Chinese people, they will say to the, to the last one, I am proud of China. I am proud of Chinese civilization. And they'll say that all over the world and they promote it. And you know what the end result is? They become powerful. People respect them. People want to do business with them. People want to visit them. Nobody wants to have a friend who's a loser. Everybody wants to align with a winner. So be a winner. Be proud. Be confident. Be outgoing. And if everyone is that way, then everybody wants to do business with you. and Everybody wants to, to, um, to align with you. And everybody wants to pay attention to your culture. And things will grow and grow and grow. Now, because of the democracy, I don't know if Indian government's going to you know, allocate money the way the Chinese can just throw money at uh, you know, spreading their culture. Uh, but if India did spend more money on this, then you would get more results. Maybe we'd have more archaeological finds that would provide more clarity. Maybe somebody would find an Indian Rosetta Stone. Uh, but definitely, Indian people would be more proud of being Indian, and they would radiate that. They would project that power onto the world. Uh, if Indian people gather in a group locally and badmouth each other, I don't care. But don't do that outside. Don't go to a European or American gathering saying Indian people suck because all they're going to hear is, huh, these people don't have any confidence in themselves. So if they don't have confidence in themselves, and guess what? I don't have confidence in them either. Okay? That's sales 101. 